Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. Uh, I have to tell you, at about 9.30, those of us that were here, there's maybe a half a dozen of us here getting ready for worship and getting ready for church, are sitting out in the cafe watching the snow come down. And everyone's looking at each other like, are we really, are we really doing this? Are we, are we doing church today? I guess the six of us will have church. And uh, so good on you for coming out, braving the elements and, and uh, showing up because uh, I think had, it, had that been happening at 7.30 in the morning instead of 9.30, we probably would have just canceled and we would have felt so foolish because uh, it's like driving around in the rain out there. It's no big deal. Um, be safe on your way home though. I'd hate for somebody to <laughs> crash their car on the way home, but thanks for being here. Uh, church just isn't the same without you. And uh, so I appreciate uh, you making the effort to be here today. Uh, today we're going to continue our series for Lent. Uh, it's a series where we've been examining in uh, alongside, you know, centuries and centuries of Christian tradition, examining the brokenness, the weakness of humanity, uh, the ideas that we are preparing ourselves for Easter um, and, and celebrating the victory that Christ has, has won by taking time to reflect on uh, the state of the world and, and, and what humanity is as a, as a part of a fallen creation. And so uh, the hope is that in taking time to reflect on brokenness and weakness, that on, on Easter when we gather to celebrate risenness and reconciliation, that it'll just be that much sweeter of a time uh, for, having, for having done the work of reflecting on the state of things. Uh, I say the state of things. Now, the most true thing that anyone could say about humanity is that we have been reconciled to God by Jesus's redemptive work. That's the most true thing. But when you look around at the world, you don't see that truth every day. When you examine your own life, you don't experience or fully experience the reality of that um, because we live in a world that is still suffering under the brokenness of sin and, and longing. Scripture describes the world as longing for uh, the moment of full redemption when Christ returns and new heaven and new earth and, and all things have passed away and, and the new is here. Um, scripture reminds us that we are in this day and age similar to uh, stories in Scripture in, in like the nation of Israel, wandering in the wilderness. We are, we ha- God has appointed a time for us to enter the fullness, the promised land, but for now we are wandering in the wilderness. Or for now we are like the nation of Israel, when they spent time in exile. God has a home, a place for us, a restorative work he's going to do. Uh, But for the time being, uh, we are living in uh, in exile. In this season of wilderness and exile, our lives here on earth, God has given us practices, things that help remind us, those of us who live in the wilderness, that the wilderness doesn't define reality. Those of us who are stuck in exile, that exile doesn't define reality reality. Practices that help us connect to something that's deeper and greater than brokenness and weakness. Practices that help us embrace the final word that Jesus' work speaks over humanity. And so our plan for the Lent season has been to examine some of these different spiritual disciplines or practices, ways that we can live in the new creation or embrace the reality of new creation today 
despite the fact that we're in the wilderness. So last week we talked about the discipline of prayer. Uh, in the wilderness, we live in a place where uh, although God is always present, we don't always feel his presence. Although God has created us to be in relationship with him, we can struggle to to really walk with him and, and talk with him and live in fellowship with God. And so God has given us a discipline of prayer, of communication with God that is meant to, uh, through our interactions with him, him speaking to us, us speaking to him, uh, we become reshaped as people who, from the inside out, are just convinced that God is with us and, and near to us, and, and we become reformed in the likeness of Christ. If, if our daily life and the passing away of our own mortal bodies or the brokenness of the world around us reminds us that we are perishing, then time in prayer and time with God is an opportunity for us to connect with the reality that, that there is also a true thing, that within each of us is, is a being who, who is designed to live forever, enjoying God's presence with him. Uh, within each of us is a being who God delights in. And that he's so thrilled that he's put you on the earth and that you are who you are. And he's excited for you to enjoy his presence forever. This week, we're moving on from prayer to the discipline of fasting. I know we talked about fasting a, a bit in the fall when we were doing the 40 days for fullness uh, experiment together. Um, uh, but we're going to talk a little bit more about it today because it's one of those disciplines that helps us to connect to, uh, to what's really true in the world. Uh, Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount have been our text for this series, and so you can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, and you can read along starting in verse 16 with me as Jesus begins to talk about fasting. Let's pray before we read. Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful that you are present, that you're with us, that your Holy Spirit is guiding uh, each of us throughout the day, whether we're aware of it or not. Uh, we're so grateful that you have divine purposes for each of our lives and that you are fully committed to seeing those purposes realized in each of our lives. And so uh, we just want to lay down our own agendas, our own thoughts, uh, our own desires for this time, and embrace those things that you have for us. So we ask that you would open our hearts to hear your word, open our eyes to see truth, and, uh, and reshape us into the likeness of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, we read the words of Jesus. He says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. If you're not super familiar with scripture or Christian practices, you might be asking yourself right now, what is fasting? Fasting was a, a, a practice of giving up food, to not eat for a period of time in, in pursuit of God, in pursuit of connection with God, or giving up prayer so that, or giving up eating so that you can spend time dedicated in prayer, or serving the Lord, giving up eating so that you could take the resources that you usually expend in eating, your time and your money and expend those in serving your fellow man or pursuing uh, the growth of the kingdom. People did it in Scripture all the time. In the Old Testament, it's referred to a ton. Jesus fasted. It was a common 
spiritual discipline. And, and in Jesus's day, it would seem that the practice he is criticizing is when people would engage in fasting, stop eating, in order to gain some kind of religious credibility with others, the society around them. So when people would engage in a discipline that was meant to connect them with God in an ambition to look good for other people. I know this is something that none of us could ever relate to ourselves. Um, but the idea that I would be living my life for God based on how I think it looks for those around me rather than the God who I'm supposed to be living my life for. Jesus says to them, look, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites who try to make it obvious that they're fasting, disfiguring their faces, looking very sad and hungry. And Oh, what are you doing? Oh, well, I'm fasting today. I'm pursuing the Lord. Okay, I won't invite you out to lunch. That's great. He says to them, I want you to wash your face and put on oil and, and, and don't make it obvious that you're fasting because this isn't about what the other people might think or who you might impress. This is a practice between you and God. It's, a, it's something that's been given to you to connect with the reality of God's presence. If fasting is about connecting with God's presence, then why the whole issue with food? How does not eating help you connect with God's presence? Well, let me tell you a short story. This last week, I was sitting in the cafe on Tuesday morning, as I do quite often, sitting at Keebler. And I'd, I'd had some conversations with some people who were going through very hard and very heavy things. And I was feeling pretty weighed down and, and anxious, partly for them, partly for our church, partly for me, uh, you know, insecurities about if you're, a, if you're a good pastor, people that you walk with shouldn't have problems, right? They should all be perfect Christians, of course. And so I'm, I'm wallowing in a little bit of, of just the weightiness of situations and anxiety, and, and I just, I need some comfort. And, and so what do I do? I, I mean, I could turn to scriptures, I could pray, I just preached a, a, a darn good sermon on prayer the week before. Um, I could ask someone to pray for me, uh, but I'm sitting in the table over in the corner where the kids check in is now, and I think to myself, I had discovered some weeks ago that they have these delicious cinnamon rolls at Keebler Coffee. And, and while I'm sitting there wallowing in, in uh, all the feelings, I think to myself, you know what I need right now? I need a cinnamon roll. So I confidently walk up to the counter to order one. And, uh, and this is going to be on the church's dime, by the way, because these are casualties in my work. So, uh, and I say, I would like a cinnamon roll, please. And she says, would you like that warmed up with frosting on it? And I say, that sounds delightful. Why would anyone eat a cinnamon roll any other way? I mean, if you're going to go big, go big, right? Uh, and so uh, I, I take the warm cinnamon roll to my seat. I sit down to eat it. And for a few blissful moments, it was like all of my troubles just disappeared. In the sweet, gooey, warm cinnamon roll. They're delicious. If you are down here during the week and you, you I don't know, need some health food, uh, get one of those. Um, I eat the cinnamon roll, and then I finish it, and at this point, my tummy begins to remind me that I haven't eaten anything else today, so now all I've eaten is a warm, gooey, sugary cinnamon roll, and I've got a little bit of a tummy ache, and all of the feelings that I was feeling as my brain's, 
you know, all the, all the pleasure circuits that were enacted by eating a cinnamon roll are beginning to fade. Like everything just comes right back on me. And I'm like, I'm arguably worse off because I've got a slight stomach ache and I still feel just as bad as I did before. Does that story sound familiar to any of you? Is that, is that, am I alone in, in reaching for comfort food when I don't feel great? You know, why did I crave a cinnamon roll when I'm feeling anxious or heavy? There's this, like, sweet, rich foods are like medicine in our society. Not like medicine that cures you. It's, it's like cold medicine, right? Like, we take cold medicine not because it helps us get over a cold. We take cold medicine because it masks all the symptoms of the cold. You ever, like, take DayQuil in the morning, and you, like, take some DayQuil, you're feeling pretty good, you head out, and then the DayQuil wears off, and you realize, oh, man, I'm still really sick. I probably shouldn't be sneezing all over the society around me. We, We reach for this stuff because our brains have been trained to say, this is what you need. When you're feeling down, you can acquire something, and it will make you feel better. My story of the cinnamon roll might be like one of your stories from maybe the last week yourself. It's also a lot like this story from a long time ago in a garden with a snake and a woman. There's this woman, Eve, who's having a conversation with a serpent. And this conversation begins to stir up all kinds of feelings inside of her. You can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read this story together. It's a short story. Um, and, and admittedly, it's a familiar story, but my hope is that today we'll be able to look at it from a fresh perspective. You know, there's a book that I've been recommending to cr- like crazy to people for the last couple of years. It's called The Anatomy of a Soul by Dr. Kurt Thompson. And, and in, in chapter 12 of that book, he reimagines the story of Genesis 3 through the lens of, uh, of brain science, relational uh, perspectives. He reflects on how the details of this story Um, through the lens of of human attachment and the mind's ability to process emotions like shame. He he kind of retells the story through that lens, and it's it's a super great uh, way to look at things. And I guess I'm saying all of that just because uh, if you think this content is good, know that I didn't come up with it myself. Uh, Let's start reading Genesis chapter 3 together. Verse 1 says, The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. The serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? How many of you have had someone ask you a question with the word really in it? Are you really going to wear that? I won't say who's ever asked me that. Are are you, did you really think that was a good idea? Is that really what you're going to do? Usually when someone throws that kind of qualifying word into a statement, it's, it's a, a subtle or maybe a not so subtle. It's a bit of a personal attack, right? Like the unsaid thing is that there is something wrong with you that you would think this is a rational thing to do. The serpent is engaging Eve in a conversation, but this is not just an innocent theological conversation that he's trying to invite her into. This is a loaded conversation with language that is meant to subtly plant seeds of shame and doubt inside of the woman's mind. Did God really say 
not to eat from the fruit of any tree in the garden? This conversation has already become more than a casual chat. Not only is the serpent attacking Eve and saying you're wrong underneath the words of what he's saying, but he's also misquoting God and paying a picture of God who's less generous than he is. God told them there was only one tree they couldn't eat from, and the serpent's question says, you can't eat from the trees of the garden. So the woman says in verse 2, she replies, well, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say that you must not eat from the fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Eve's response to the serpent has it's been noted by plenty of people that it's a little different than what God had said. And so the serpent comes with this accusing question and Eve begins to activate her memory and she's trying to remember what it was that God had said or what she'd been taught God had said by Adam. And she adds something to God's command saying, you can't even touch the fruit or it'll kill you. Which is a little different than it actually was. The command that was given in Genesis 2 was not to eat, nothing about touching. And so in a, in a way, the hostility of this conversation is already beginning to jumble Eve's thoughts and it's beginning to paint a different reality than what is. Eve's error begins to paint God's rule as a little more harsh than it actually was. The serpent's question begins to paint God in a light that's a little more harsh than it actually is. And if we begin to imagine a God who's more harsh or more stern or more uh, not for us than he really is, it begins to incite inside of us all kinds of feelings of anxiety and doubt. Because if we can't count on God to be for us, what can we really count on? If God is already against us, what hope do we have in this world? The serpent replies to Eve and says, you won't certainly die. There's no need for subtlety now. The serpent's flat out telling her, oh, you're wrong about that. You're not right about that. He's maybe slightly dismissive of her too, right? Like, you won't certainly die. Don't, don't be so silly. Ha, ha, ha. Eve, you're so wrong. You've been duped. You're naive. But don't worry these feelings that are swirling around inside of you right now, it's not your fault. God has actually lied to you. He continues, he says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The lie that the serpent is wanting Eve to begin to buy into is that God is not trustworthy. And the command that God has given them and the way that God has designed them to live, receiving their fulfillment, their fullness from a relationship with him is actually not a good thing. It's something that God has designed to hold out on them or keep them away from what really, what they really could have. And the questions are asked in such a way so as to stir up inside of her feelings that she wants to get rid of, things that she wants to avoid. And the serpent saying to her, the reason you're experiencing that is because God is not who he says he is. God is holding out on you. But there's great news. You can reach out 
and grab something. You can acquire something that is going to fulfill you and make you all better. The feelings of shame, the feelings of doubt, the uncertainty that you have, that you're now faced with the reality that God's not who he said he is, can all be fixed if you just go out and grab the fruit and eat it. The answer to the shame, the answer to these inadequacies that you're suddenly feeling is to fill yourself with something that you can go and get in your own strength. The tragedy of all of this is, is that Eve buys into this nonsense and reaches out with her hand to take something that she was never meant to have based on the illusion that she doesn't have the things that she already needs, that God wouldn't somehow meet her in this place. And the real tragedy is that humanity has been ineffectively dealing with feelings of shame and guilt and inadequacy in a similar manner ever since. Exhibit A, me sitting in moments of doubt and uncomfortable emotions and reaching out for a cinnamon roll, thinking this will fix my problems. You know, any time that we turn to something or, or someone other than our creator to fulfill the perceived needs that we have, we're missing the mark. We're sinning. It's probably fair to say, in light of that, that the most common physical reminder that we have of being people who need something is our hunger, our appetite, our need for food. Considering that, it's no wonder that the Lord prays, give us today our daily bread. God knows that we are people who have been created with needs in our lives. And we turn to him in our place of need and we ask him to fulfill them. No wonder Jesus says a little later in the Sermon on the Mount, later in Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, or, or about your body, what you're going to wear. He says, life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. There's this idea, my human hunger for, you know, for food or for things begins to tell me that that's the most important thing. The greatest truth right now is that I'm hungry. Any of you ever get cranky when you get a little bit hungry? And it's because like in your, your body is just screaming to you that the most important thing right now is that you would get something to eat. And if you don't recognize that, then you become short and frustrated with other people around you who aren't feeding you because the most important need is to be fed right now. You treat them deplorably just because maybe you need a cinnamon roll. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life. Why do we worry? Because we forget the reality that there's a loving creator who is ridiculously committed to caring for our true needs. 
We have a loving creator who, if he isn't letting, you know, the dirty birds flying around starve, how much more is he going to care for those who are important to them? Their true needs. And in these words of Jesus, there's a reminder that your needs are more than the food that you're putting in your body or the clothes that you're that you're uh, dressing your body in. It, the life is there's more to life than what we eat or what we air, what we wear. Sorry. The Christian discipline of fasting is an opportunity to to deny the lie that something that you eat or that you can acquire or that you can consume is what is going to make you whole. That something that you can acquire is the thing that's going to fix your human weakness or your brokenness. In a way, fasting is the opportunity to live out, to relive the temptation of humanity in a way that you get to say no to it with your life. Fasting is a remarkable opportunity to put yourself in the garden to sit in your place of need and to hear the, the deceiver say, reach out and eat that food. It's what, you, it's what will leave you whole. And say, no, I believe that there's a deeper reality here. That life is more than food and more than clothing. I'm going to deny what my body's craving right now in order to embrace the truth that I have been created to live in. And, and in doing so, it's this beautiful opportunity to reshape the, the story of your humanity. We are all people who through one man's sin, we all find ourselves subject to sin and death. And yet the gospel is that through one man's obedience, we're all brought into eternal life, a life that's more than food and more than clothing. Jesus defined eternal life as saying, this is eternal life that my followers would know you, the one true God, and that you would know Jesus Christ whom you've sent. What a different story it would have been in the garden. I know it's a fruitless exercise. I find myself saying it all the time in sermons. Though. What a different story the garden would have been if Eve is confronted with these feelings of shame and inadequacy and misunderstanding God and, and doubting God, if in that place she had turned to him said, Lord, where are you? This, I, I, I'm feeling something I've never felt before. What is going on here? And you imagine the father swooping in and, and his presence being enough to heal everything that she's lacking so that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil seems just as unappealing today as it did yesterday. This is God's desire for us to invite us into the reality of his presence where the temptation has no hold. Fasting is a great opportunity to practice that. To know God, to experience a relationship with him, to say this is the thing that I need more than anything else. This is the one thing that will satisfy me more than anything I could ever acquire or take in my hand or consume with my mouth. And through this discipline, I really think we become the kind of people who when the serpent comes, he just simply draws us, drives us deeper into God's presence rather than us going and searching for rumored trees bearing forbidden fruit. When we fast, when we deny physical hunger for a period of time in order to seek God's presence, we're training ourselves. We're training our brain 
to be more attentive to God's presence in our lives, to long for his presence. We're training our brain to go to him when we find ourselves in a place of need or hunger rather than going to the conventional sources the world has given to us. We're training ourselves that whatever the need might be, whether it's our own brokenness, whether we're confronted with feelings produced by the brokenness of other people, whether we're wallowing our own shame or doubt or anxiety, we're training ourselves to turn to the living God where our healing is going to be found only in Him. David wrote a song, King David wrote a psalm, it's Psalm 63, and this psalm for me has long represented who I wish I was on the inside. This psalm represents for me the ideal relationship between me and God, something that I I would love to have be my reality one day. And and I thought we would close the sermon reading it together and... uh, And then I've got a few small group questions for you. So Psalm 63, uh, the psalmist writes, uh, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you, and I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary, and I've beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. And I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied. As with the richest of foods. And with singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you're my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you, and your right hand upholds me. I would love to be the kind of person who longs for God's presence in that way. Who thirsts for God's presence like someone would thirst in a dry and parched land. Who, who, who believes that his love is better than life. I would love to experience God in such a way that I would be so fully satisfied as with the richest of foods without the tummy ache or the calories that need to be worked off later. I think the miracle that Scripture is trying to capture is that God is offering himself in fellowship to humanity in this way. Scripture teaches us this is how you were designed to live with this kind of relationship with your creator. And I just imagine, when we walk in this kind of relationship, you can't help but be totally transformed. Lord God, we are just grateful that you have invited us into this reality. And we just ask that you would help us for however long we're going to be wandering this desert, for however long we're going to be living in exile, we just ask that you would help us to connect to the deeper things that are more true than anything we could acquire or eat. You are a well of life. Help us to come to you and drink deeply of the life that you offer.
In Jesus' name, amen.